Good morning. Certainly is great to greet you in the name of the Lord, and uh, certainly glad for those who have joined with us by video or whatever device you're on, your phone, your computer, your whatever. The things that I don't know how to work, you know, whatever, whatever those things are. But uh, we're glad that you've uh, joined with us today, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to worship the Lord in music and be focusing upon him. He's the Lord of all. And the question, if he's Lord of all, is he Lord of all? That's an interesting question, something we're going to think about. Is he the Lord of all when we're in a culture that doesn't want him to be Lord of anything? That's another question. So we're going to be thinking about that today. <clears throat> Matter of fact, you have in your bulletin today some sermon notes so that when I get you lost, you can figure out helpful. And then at the end, there's some questions to be thinking about, reflecting upon, and uh, that will be helpful as well. Let's just begin with a word of prayer, and we'll ask the Lord to guide our, our thinking today. Father, we thank you that the word of God dwells in us richly. But the question is, when the word of God dwells in us richly, what difference does it make? We're instructed by James to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of it also. And Lord, sometimes it's easy to ascribe to truth in our heads it's another thing to act out that truth in our lives. So we're asking this morning that you would just guide and direct our thinking, may the Spirit of God be our teacher, and the things that maybe I would say that aren't uh, really helpful, maybe uh, something that is frivolous, that that would be struck from the mind. But the things that are important, essential, may the Spirit of God really seal it into our heart we ask that the word of God would be as it says in scripture, that it would be a sword that would pierce into our very center of our soul. And so we're asking that you would do that today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If we did a poll of our congregation today and we asked them uh, to, what do you think about our nation? What do you think their responses would be? Actually, I don't think that uh, it would be a surprise to us as to what the responses would be. One of the things that concerns me, unfortunately, is that sometimes our responses are not necessarily focusing upon the spiritual dimensions of life, but it's more focused upon other things in life, politics, etc. But I, I think it was interesting that there was a poll that was done by the Pew Research um, Organization not too long ago it said uh, a majority of Americans expressed dissatisfaction with the current state of the nation. Does that surprise you? No. And then it goes on and it says, today only about a, a quarter, 24% are satisfied with the way things are going in our country, while three quarters say they are dissatisfied. About half of Americans, 51%, say they are hopeful about the state of our country today. Over 49% of Americans are angry. Hmm, that doesn't surprise us how things are going on in the country. Just over half of the United States public, 56%, say they are fearful about the country. Well, that's kind of gloomy. Uh, but yet that is, uh, I think, uh, the state of the nation. 
That's the way we look at things. And the question is, the state of the nation, how do we get there? Well, maybe it's because we could think about the state of our morality. What is the morality of our nation? Um, it was interesting, and when I was looking this up, the Reno Gazette. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but if it's Reno, Nevada, I'm thinking this is an ironic article for them to write. But what is the status of morality in our nation today? That was the article. And it says, and they write, many say this country is facing a moral crisis, that it is a dysfunctional, chaotic mess. There is moral confusion. And then they quote from Barna, who is a well-known pollster among the evangelical community and the nation. And he says, a majority of American adults across age group ethnicity, gender, and socioeconomic status and political uh, theology express concern about the nation's moral condition. Eight in ten overall say they're concerned about the moral state of our nation. You see, I'm convinced that there's a connection. The moral state of our nation is why I think that there's this, this state of the nation that has caused people to say, this isn't good. And it's led one sage to, to suggest that our nation is becoming like or is already like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's an interesting thought. And, it, and, it, and Babylon was, was like Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps the world we live in is more like Babylon. You know, I, I, I do think that that's interesting as well. Oz Guinness, which, one of my favorite writers, uh, he wrote in a book called The, the Call, he says, we live in an ABC or anything but Christianity mood, meaning that any religion was fresh, relevant, and exciting as long as it was not Christian, orthodox, or traditional. In other words, if you ask people in surveys, are you spiritual? Most of them will say yes. But if you press them further, what they mean by that, all of a sudden, it's ABC, anything but Christianity. And that is very, very much the condition. In, any, in many respects, uh, believers in the Western world are living uh, like believers in Babylon. And uh, the question is, how do we live as believers in Babylon? The question is a real one that we have to answer. Because we are in that state of Babylon, in a way. And if you're a believer, you're in that state, and it is having an impact upon you. Uh, in many respects, uh, we find out that um, we, we say, well, can we survive this? I get concerned because I see so much gloom and doom among the Christian community. They have this attitude, yes, you're right, Pastor Reed. Things are horrible. Glad you brought it up, like I didn't know. Oh, and Pastor Reed, thank you for telling us that we have a moral problem. Uh, well, like you didn't know that before. But did you know that you can be a believer in this Babylon we live in, and you not only can survive, but you can thrive? That's very, very clear from Scripture. And it's very, very clear as you look at one particular man that we do this morning, two chapters in the book of Daniel. As we look at Daniel we find out there is a believer in Babylon that not only survived, but he thrived, and I think he is a great example for us. As a matter of fact, 
I'd like to suggest a proposition this morning. The proposition is stated there on the screen. For believers to live successfully in a hostile culture, it requires people of character who are focused upon God and his honor, not upon the well-being and culture's approval. Too many of us are focused upon the wrong thing. We're focused upon a culture that's around us, which is, I think, uh, very much like Babylon. And yet, I think that maybe our focus needs to be different. It needs to be not horizontal. It needs to be vertical. Our focus should be upon what does God want from us? How will we honor God with our lives? And I suggest to you that it is very clear from Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 6, two things that really can help us to be successful and to thrive as a believer in Babylon. The first thing I want to do is give you a little bit of background just so they understand where we're at. The Babylonian Empire at the time when Daniel was living was uh, rather sizable. In fact, we find out that um, you know, there had already been a division of the nation of Israel. The northern tribes had gone into captivity under Assyria. The southern tribes didn't learn the lesson. Some hundred years later, they go into captivity, but now it's in Babylon. And, and, and it's not going to be an easy captivity, and it's not going to be just temporary. It's going to be lasting for 70 years. It had actually been prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. He said that this would last, and it would last this long. In fact, it made that imprint upon the prophet, upon the man Daniel. And we find out that there were three deportations. The first one, I believe, is where Daniel was deported, and that was uh, in 605 B.C., and Daniel's taken captive, and he's taken some 800 miles over to a land that he doesn't know, a land where he is the outsider, a land where it is totally different from the, the background and moral upbringing that he would have received at home. And here he is planted in this environment. Can you imagine being a young teen? And that's what he was when he was taken captive. He's a young teen brought into Babylon, and Babylon is not the place that a young teen wants to be. We find out that there's two other captivities in 597. Ezekiel's taken captive. That gives you an idea of the context. And then some years later in 586, Jerusalem is finally destroyed. And so the hope of going back, it looks like it's not going to happen. So Daniel is a man who has been transplanted into Babylon, into a culture that is anything but what it should be, as far as a Hebrew boy would be concerned. And Babylon was thoroughly pagan and as a nation, and it was bent on changing those that came into their sphere of influence to adapt to their culture. It reminded me in some respects as I was preparing this over the last couple of weeks, it was like going back to 1992 when I went over to visit our sister church. We went to see our sister church, and at that time, uh, there were still believers in the Baptist Union that had gone through the gulag. In other words, they had gone through the indoctrination program of the former Soviet Union. They would not bend the knee to the Soviet system, and as a result of that, they went into an indoctrination program. And that indoctrination program was to change their thinking because if you change a person's thinking, you change a person's living. 
And so that was the plan. And I remember talking to some of those individuals and the hardships that they went through. And yet they stood firm in their faith. And actually these were the people that came back from that environment and were some of the leaders that were in the Baptist Union. Amazing. So what I'm saying is that it can happen not just back in the time of Daniel. It can happen in our own day. And it is happening in our own country. There's a major indoctrination program going on, and it doesn't look the same as it did in the Soviet Union. It maybe even look a little different than it did in Babylon, but yet there are significant similarities. And we're going to see something about that today. Yet God chose to use a believer in Babylon to be an agent of change and to be a positive influence in a pagan culture. And I want to suggest today that I'm looking at a bunch of agents of change here in Calvary Monument Bible Church. I am convinced that in this place there are people that can make a difference. You will not just survive the culture that is against you. You will thrive in a culture if you follow some of the guidelines and principles that we see in these chapters today. So uh, let me just suggest to you there's two time periods in Daniel's life we're going to look at. The first is in chapter 1, and he's a teenager. But then we're going to fly decades later. We're going to go back to Daniel, and he's in his 80s in chapter 6. So it wasn't just a flash in the pan. It wasn't something that he just was okay for a short period of time. Here is a man who endured and influenced a pagan culture for many, many years. And we want to look at these two time periods because they're significant lessons for us, I believe. Let's look, first of all, at the first time period in Daniel's life. And we see there a, a culture antagonistic to Jehovah. It says there in chapter 1, in the third year of the reign of Jeho Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. I want you to see, first of all, a life and a culture antagonistic to Jehovah. Um, this culture didn't think very highly of the children of Israel. In fact, they looked at them as if I could say it nicely, losers, because they did. And in fact, they saw Israel's God as weak, not able to protect Judah, not aware that God was working behind the scenes. <coughs> Do you see what it says there? It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of the king of Babylon. That's an interesting statement that's being made there because it shows that the Lord's in control. Do you realize that when we live in a pagan culture, the Lord doesn't surprise. I know you're there. I know it. And you're there for a purpose. Jesus put it this way, you're there to be salt and light. That's why you're there. And so this culture saw Israel's God as weak, and they saw their God as superior. In fact, that's where you get this, this inkling there when it says, they brought the articles that they took from, the, from, from uh, Israel and they brought the articles of the treasure house to his God. In other words, they're trophies. 
And they brought him in there and they were hanging him up there and say, hey, our God beat this God. Can you imagine that? You know, they didn't have a very strong God. Our God is the God that you got to worship. And that was their attitude. So the life was antagonistic to the whole concept of Jehovah. Do you think that the culture in which you and I live are antagonistic to the Lord? I do. But there's a second thing I see here in chapter 1. We see life in a culture bent on altering them. And you see they do it by a number of things. They do it by altering attitudes. The king instructed uh, the, this master of the eunuchs to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the no, nobles. And notice the description of them. Good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So these were not, you know, uh, people who are not very significant. These were people who had already attained quite a bit of, of uh, standing, as it says in here. But I, I noticed something else. They were immersing them in a pagan culture. Did you see what it said there? By impacting their language and their literature. Now, why were they doing this? Not to make them better, because we already saw that they, they, they were, had a good heritage, verse 3. They had a good appearance, verse 4. They had a good mind, verse 4. They were not there to improve them. They were there to conform them. In other words, they were taking the best of the best, and they were going to make the best of the best people who would reflect their culture. So it's changing them. So they alter attitudes. And they also altered them by altering appetites. Remember, this is a teenager. Verse 5. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of wine, which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve the king. <laughs> the way to a teenager's heart is through their stomach. And so what does he do? Hey, guys. We're going we're gonna to do some training, but you are going to live it up. You are going to have the delicacy of the king. You are going to have the best wine. You are going to have the best food. But the interesting thing is, you weren't going to have kosher food. These were, these were, this was food that was already blessed by the gods of that nation. So they were going to have to step outside of their traditions. They're going to have to step outside of their culture. They were going to have to step outside of the word of God because there were dietary restrictions that had already been established for them. And so we find out that they altered their, them by not only their attitudes and their appetites, but also their allegiance. In verses 6 and 7, it talks about what's going to happen. And he removes associations with Jehovah because all of these young men that are described here all had interesting names, very specific names, very specific names that attached itself to Jehovah God. Daniel means God is my judge. And his name is changed to Belshazzar, Bel's prince. Hananiah, his name meant Jehovah is gracious. It was chained to Shadrach. I am fearful of God. Mishael was called 
in Hebrew was, who is what God is? And his name was changed to Meshach, who is comparable to Shech. Azariah was, means Jehovah was helped, and his name was changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo, one of the Babylonian gods. Do you see that? Just a, just a bit of different change. But all these changes were put together with the idea of conforming them to a culture that was not in keeping with God. But then I see something else, too. I see the, that uh, this man, Daniel, was willing to not only uh, be in a culture that was bent on altering him and trying to make him uh, willing to live uh, differently, but he was willing to live counterculturally. Do you see that? Look at, look at the, the language there. Where did this develop? It says in verse, verse 8, it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He was willing to live a life to be countercultural. Where did this develop? I, I, it, where did this, this development of purposing in his heart, I, it could have come from a number of influences. I would suggest that maybe it was from family influence. I think families have the responsibility and have the responsibility and the, to impact young people's lives and to communicate to them truth. I unfortunately have heard parents over the years, and I've actually been involved in counseling with some college students in the last 12 years, whose parents said, you know, I don't want to push anything on you. You need to believe what you need to believe. Can you imagine that? And, and that's not probably what Daniel's parents did. The other thing is that, in all possibility, there was the influence of the national influence. Even though Israel was going down the tubes, there had been a major revival that took place not too far before they went into captivity. Because you remember there was a time where there was a, a revival that took place and that revival under Josiah was a significant one. So there was that influence. There's a national influence. And then there was also, very likely, there was a personal conviction. Remember what his name meant, Daniel? God is my judge. How would you like to have mom yell out, the matzah's ready, come get the kefilta fish. Daniel, God is my judge. Daniel, God is my judge. Hey, Daniel, God is my judge. Do you think that these things had impact upon him? Oh, I do. And so here we find out that he had a life willing to be countercultural, and it was developed because he purposed it in his heart. You know, life has to make up its mind. You have to make decisions as to how you're going to live and where you're going to live. And we find out, too, that look at the focus of this life. The focus was that he would not defile himself. His heart was saying, I honor God, and I honor God by not defiling myself. And he wasn't living by the, the old adage, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. Hmm? Isn't that the way a lot of us, you know, actually function in life? 
well, you know, in our culture, this is what they do. Now I've been preaching, now I'm going to meddle. And so here we go. How about being the person who says, you know, we worship the Lord, and we worship Him on the Lord's Day. And all of a sudden, someone comes up and says, oh no, we have a game today. It's getting real quiet in here. But do you understand what I'm saying? Isn't it interesting? It's, it's, it's not overt so much it is, as it is covert. And it used to be, you know, I remember in the beginning days of ministry that, you know, schools and things would have games if they were going to have them, and most of them didn't have them for many years when I was even a youth pastor. But then they, they started to say, oh, we'll have them in the afternoon. And then they say, oh, well, we can't really do that because, you know, we, we're running out of fields. So we have to have them morning. And all of a sudden, we find out that there's a, a change that takes place. I'm looking to, to you to say, hey, life has to make up its mind. Now, I'm not going to tell you what you have to do, but what I am telling what you ought to do is what would be best to honor God? Hmm, that's an interesting question because you've got a whole culture looking at you to see what is most important in your life. Is it a sport or is it honoring the Lord? Is it my horizontal view or is it my vertical view that dictates my life? And then I see something else. Not only did he purpose in his heart that he would not defile himself, but I, I see the way their commitment was expressed. It says, therefore, it's Daniel made a request. Uh, by the way, it's interesting. As you look at the spirit of the request that's given there, it, it says, God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill with the chief of the eunuchs. In other words, he was already living a, a, a positive influence where he was. And he appeals to the chief of the eunuchs. And he says, uh, he, he says you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to eat this food. I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and, and drink for why should he see your faces look worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head therefore before the king. So Daniel goes to number two in command. I, I want you to see something here. It's interesting and I, 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 I've looked at this passage many times. He was bold but he wasn't belligerent. Many Christians don't know that. They, they're just plain belligerent. You know, they, they're, they're, they're so nasty. You hear some of these nasty comments that are being made and, you know, holding up their protest signs and all the rest. But he was bold, and he looked for an alternative, so he went to number two. And he says to number two in command, he said he went to, said to the steward in verse 11 of the chief of the eunuchs, and and he says, please let your servants for 10 days, let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. In other words, he said, let me, let me, let's, let's just propose it to, uh, a test. And so he was, he was persistent, but not obnoxious. He planned, but he trusted God for the outcome. And in verses 12 through 6, you see something about that test. And um, in, in those verses, it's, it's amazing because... Uh, they consented, it says in verse 14 of this matter. They tested him 10 days. 
at the end of 10 days, verse 15, their features appeared better and, and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion. I'd like to know what vegetables they were because I can eat vegetables and I still gain weight. It doesn't matter. But isn't it interesting here that you see the fact that life was honored by God for being countercultural? Isn't that what it says in verses 17 through 20? Because then we find out that they're brought before the king. And first of all, we find out their health was fine in verses 15 and 16. Uh, it talks about their, their appearance. We find out that their wisdom was significant because it says there in verse 17, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. We find out that in verse 20, it says, the matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and the astrologers. In other words, he was better than the teachers. Isn't that amazing? And so there overall, there is this approval. In verses 18 through 19, you say that the king interviewed them and he was very positive toward them. We find out that in verse 21, Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Here is a young man willing to be countercultural, and the end result was that he made an impact upon his culture. And yet he did it in such a way that it was a winsome way that he interacted with people. Not belligerent, not obnoxious, just saying, hey, let's put it to the test. You know why he could say that? Is because he believed that God could do great things. He could. I remember um, an illustration of a, a young woman. She was, uh, had a conviction. And the conviction was that she was not to be involved. That the Lord's Day was the Lord's Day, and the whole day was the Lord's Day. And so she was on a college team, and the college team was going to be playing a game. And uh, she went to the coach, and she said to the coach, you know, this is my conviction, and I understand what you're doing, but I can't play, but I want to support my team. So I'm going to go to the game after church. And she did. She drove herself. The team went on a bus, and she got in her car, and she drove to the game, and she watched her game. She cheered the team on. She was given the award by the team as to being the most outstanding Christian witness on the team. Not because she was trying to prove something. She just wanted to be something. She wanted to be a person who had a conviction and was willing to live out her conviction. Again, I'm not picking on sports. It sounds like it, but I am saying this. How hard is it for you to stand for your convictions? in the world in which you live. I think that it's very difficult for Christians in a, a compromising culture to stand firm on a conviction. I find it uh, pretty interesting as you look at the scripture that as a believer in Babylon, Daniel was, will, was not willing to be ruled by the culture he surrounded him, but by ruled by the Lord who was in him. So who rules you? your culture around you, or the Lord who is in you? You know, 
in, in many respects, Daniel was uh, part of the company of the committed. He purposed in his heart to be countercultural. And he was a witness as a result of that. And uh, he served the king as a result of that. I find it uh, interesting that, in, uh, that this is not a concept that died with Daniel. In fact, it was a, it was a, a concept that lived out even into the New Testament. Do you remember the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? I particularly like the, the paraphrase that is given, and I know we looked at it several weeks ago, it was shared, but in the Phillips translation, uh, it puts it this way. It says, with wide, eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and accepted by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice the plan of God for you is good. Meets all his demands and moves toward the goal of true maturity. Isn't that a great paraphrase? Isn't that a great principle to practice as believers in Babylon? I find out that there's a lot of things that uh, are trying to mold us as believers in Christ. Now, as I put that up there, what are some of the things that are molding believers in this room in Christ in which you live? What, what, what is it? Now, put it in your mind. You may have come up with something like this. Well, social status sort of squeezes me. Or advancement sort of squeezes me. Or approval sort of squeezes me. Or financial gain sort of squeezes me. But I am convinced that, that what we really need to do is have a true conviction. Daniel was dead to sin, which he was tempted in his culture and chose to avoid it. He, he didn't dabble with sin. He defeated sin. This cartoon cracks me up. You probably can't read the screen, but it says they're in a Bible study, maybe. And it says, uh, you know, talking about being dead to sin. And it says, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I ha did feel kind of faint once. <laughs> in other words, yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, that's sort of the way it is. True convictions alter conduct, and it takes effort not casual engagement. Daniel shows us that. Now let's bounce ahead. Seven decades. How long is this conviction going to last? Well, it lasted. We find out that at this particular point, uh, Daniel is now uh, in his 80s. Babylon has fallen. By the way, he had, had predicted this because he interpreted the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had back in Daniel chapter 2, and it's come to pass. And uh, he's now appointed by a king of another culture. And yet, evidently, he still is that consistent one that it makes an impression upon the culture in which he lives. You see, he not only survived in that pagan culture, he thrived in the pagan culture. And it's interesting here, he's appointed as uh, one of the presidents over the 120 governors that were ruling the land. And at 83, approximately, Daniel is one of the presidents. And now, at this particular point, we find out he's not only a president, but he's up for promotion. 
Huh. And uh, it looks like that the king was uh, thinking about maybe uh, taking this, this young man, well, this older man who has been around for a long time, who has, who has proven himself, he's going to take this man and he's going to uh, use him in a more significant way. He's going to be a person who is even going to be over the, 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 the whole realm. And it says in verse 3 that his life was productive in this pagan culture. He lived this distinguished life. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what that word means where it says distinguish. It means this life that is excelling. That's what it means in the Aramaic language. He was distinguishing himself in his culture. And he lived a disturbing life because, you see, uh, we find out that the governors and all of those around there, and I'm, I'm sure that those three presidents, they didn't like the idea that someone is getting ahead of them. And so he, his distinguished life was a disturbing life to those who looked at him. But they, fought, they sought then to find a fault. I, I love this, this language. It says, uh, they looked to see if there's some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could not find a charge or a fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Wow, a positive life in a pagan culture. And then we see something else about him. His life was being evaluated by that pagan culture. Do you see that? They're actually looking for something to, to find as a fault. In verse 5, these men said, We shall not find a charge against Daniel unless we find it against his concerning the law of his God. He says, you know, this guy, he's too good to be true. We can't find any problem. And so they, they look and they, they look and they look and they consulted together and they come up with a plan. And they come up with this plan in verses 6 to 9, an action toward this man of character. And the plan was, if we can't find fault, then let's just eliminate him. And so that's what they do. They eliminate him by using his faith against him. Does that happen in our culture? Do we find out that people are being, uh, people look at their life and don't like it, and they find fault? Perhaps you have seen as I have seen. Uh, a number of people have lost their jobs as coaches in football. And you know why? Because they pray with their team. And because they pray with their team, they're ousted. Now, I know it's been appealed to a number of different courts, and different courts have said they can't do that because of religious liberty and all that stuff. But a lot of them are still bringing lawsuits against these individuals. Your culture doesn't like that you're a Christian. I can assure you of that. In fact, Dawkins, a pronounced and well-known atheist, made the statements. He said, the best thing we could do is eliminate all Christians. Hmm. Best thing for our culture. So we see this, but then notice the, the life practice was maintained in that pagan culture. And it, it says that, he says, well, you know, They've come up with a plan, and the plan is, I can't pray. He says, but I'm going to. And so we see it described for us in verses 15 and, and following. And uh, actually, beginning in verse 11, excuse me. 
they look at Daniel and they knew the writing was signed that you couldn't pray to anybody except to the king. And uh, what did Daniel do? Did Daniel say, oh, the king's going to overlook this? Hey, he probably could remember back decades earlier, his three friends defied the king, not worshiping God. And guess where they ended up? In a fiery furnace. Here's culture again saying, you can't do this, even though it's your conviction. He said, oh, I can do this because it is my conviction. And he does. So it says that Daniel knew the writing was signed, that he wasn't allowed to do this. And he went to his upper room, opened the windows toward Jerusalem, knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed, giving thanks before his God, as was his custom. Well, let me put it the other way, his conviction. His conviction did not get wiped out simply because it was going to be inconvenient for him to do this in this pagan culture. And the plotters, they sprung that trap, didn't they? You see it in verses 11 through 17. They watched him. They reported on him, verses 13 and 15. And the king was ticked. That's the RSV, read standard version. Because he realized he got duped. He realized that he had, had uh, been manipulated. He realized he'd been trapped, verses 14 and verse 16. And he realized also that God's, Daniel's God was powerful. How did he get to that? Because he saw him. He watched him operating as a believer in Babylon, in, 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 in a pagan culture. I, I find it very, very interesting as you look at this uh, the king uh, says uh, he knew what God can do. Uh, at, at verse 18, it says, The king went to this palace and, and uh, he spent the night fasting. He's, he, was, he was looking for a way to get around this that had been done. And the king says to him in verse 16, he says, Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Really? Where did he get that? Daniel had a history. Daniel had been a man of conviction his entire life. You see, it's one thing to be a believer who establishes convictions. It's another thing to be a believer who maintains convictions, even when it's tough to do it. And so he lived this life and his life was spared by Almighty God, verses 18 through 24. And, you know, the king wonders what God could do. If you read, and we, if we had time, we could read that what the king was doing is he fasted, and he did this all night. And, and you get the idea. He was, he, was, he, was, he was worried about Daniel. Even though he said earlier, he says, the God you serve, can, he, he's going to deliver you. I'm wondering if we could also say, even though it's not in the text, right? <laughs> Your guy can deliver you, right? And God did. And we find out that 
He had doubts through the night, verse 18, and he made the discovery in the morning, verses 19 through 23. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went with haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? I'm just wondering in my mind, was he expecting silence and just a few burps from lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He says, Daniel didn't come back. He says, ha, told you, told you. Boom. We're number one. We're number one. We're the, we're the chief of chiefs. O king, live forever. Hmm. And then he said, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. Also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. I love that. And justice is meted out. Verse 24. And the last thing I, I notice in this section of scripture is the life he lived impacted the pagan culture. Because the king now gets involved. And the king honors God. Wait a minute. I, I thought... The king wanted to be honored. Yeah, but he wants to now honor the God that Daniel honored. You see, that's what it means to be a believer in Babylon. That's what it means to be a believer in a pagan culture. When you take a stand and you do it in an appropriate way, not belligerently, but appropriately, you find out that it's notice and God is honored. And the king writes this, this amazing statement and it says, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Hmm. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. His Dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Isn't that interesting? What a twist. Let's get rid of Daniel and his influence. No, 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 no. Let's honor Daniel's God. Isn't that an interesting change of events? You see, as a believer in Babylon, Daniel was not willing to play it safe and abandon his convictions. In fact, he was maintaining conviction in the face of the pressure to do otherwise. And it reveals that if we dabble in our faith, or are we fully devoted to him? It's important that you're not just playing church, but church is not just what you're all about. It's what convictions do you have before Jesus Christ? What convictions do you have 
before a holy God. And what convictions do you have to be holy as he is holy? See, that makes the difference between whether you dabble or devoted to God. There's a historical character that you probably have heard about, William Wilberforce. He was a man who came to faith when he was 26 years of age, politician. It wasn't popular to be a person of faith. And he was not only a person of faith, but he was an outspoken person of faith. And he came under tremendous persecution, but he stood firm on his faith and the implications of the faith. As a matter of fact, God used him to be the one that made, made a change in his culture, a social transformation. It was attributed to him for the abolition of slavery in England. Why? Because he was a man of conviction. And he stood for his conviction. He was consistent. He maintained the conviction, and he made a difference. There's a person that, again, I enjoy hearing, Alistair Begg. And he said this, we tend to have an unhealthy preoccupation with being regarded as significant, intellectually sensible, and socially acceptable. The choice is clear. You are either going to do what Jesus says or you're going to do what culture says. And my question to you this morning is this. Who are you listening to? You're listening to Jesus? Then you will be somebody that will be countercultural in this culture. Or are you listening to your culture? And if you're listening to your culture, guess what? You're not going to be making an impact that you could make. You see, we think culture is right. And I want to tell you, culture is ruined. And that started all the way back in Genesis 3, in the fall. But Jesus Christ came to redeem a fallen culture. And he uses you and I to declare the message of the gospel, the good news. The good news is this, that Jesus Christ loves sinners. That's why he died for them. And he died for them and he makes them new creations. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And as a result of that, as a result of that, we can be people who are agents of change in a world that needs change, but not by us forcing something upon them, but by asking God to work by the Holy Spirit of God as people accept the good news of the gospel and they're changed from the inside out. Daniel was a man of conviction, and as a result of that conviction, he was a man who was an agent of change. Agents of change sit in this auditorium today. The question is, that's who you are, but is that what you will be? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God that we've looked at this morning. Thank you for Daniel and for what he gives to us as an illustration of life that can be lived to the fullest. May we live it to the glory of God. May we bring glory to him through our lives, and may we do it in a way that honors him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.